0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
1: We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ, and now to us in this short letter of James. And we pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us and transform us to the glory of Christ, for our own joy and for the good of our neighbor and the world around us. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I feel like this evening it's like, I don't know, like a southern church in the 50s or something, and we should now all have fans out. Uh, Maybe we could work on some Christchurch fans or something in the weeks to come. The good news about Albuquerque is that we just have to get through like July, and then It's fall, uh, which is great. Uh, Hello everyone, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Many are out of town, many others uh, on Zoom this evening. Glad that you're joining us even in your homes or in a different state or something. But if you're in another state, then like we have to like rat you out to the state when you come back, if you don't, if you like leave your house, don't leave your house or something for 14 days or something, I don't know. Anyway, we're glad that you're all here one way or the other this evening. Uh, This week we intended to have Chris Promersberger from Mountain Valley Church in Edgewood join us this evening. He was going to preach the first sermon of a short little four week series through the book of Habakkuk. Um, We will have him join us next week for that first sermon. He, like I was a couple of weeks ago, had a confirmed positive exposure this week. So late in the game this week, we had to kind of change things up. Um, And then after those four weeks in Habakkuk, just for a little game plan for the rest of the summer, we'll spend a few more weeks in the Psalms uh, like we do when we finish any book. And then for the fall, we are really looking forward to beginning to undertake the, the long but amazing book of Acts, Uh, in the fall. So get excited for that. But today, since it was a kind of a late audible in the week, we wanted to plop down right in the middle of this short book of James in chapter 2 and consider showing distinctions. Consider the sin of partiality. What I think a a appropriate text for us to consider in this time. Uh, In this time, this week, Major League Baseball uh, reported to spring training players uh, re- mostly all reported to their home stadiums. Uh, it's really not spring training. It's summer training, and the baseball season should be like halfway through right now. Uh, but what can you do? And I love baseball, and I am really excited about the possibility of a season actually happening. Uh, I love it even more now than I did when I was in high school or a young kid, even my early years of college, because a huge change happened in the way that people viewed and understood the game in the early 2000s. Uh, without giving you a huge history, if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie Moneyball, the game of baseball forever changed in those early years of the early 2000s. Until then, the way that scouts, the way that executives, the way that coaches or even fans determined whether or not a baseball player was good or not was based on a couple of statistics. If you were a, a hitter, You were a good hitter if you hit a lot of home runs or you had a lot of RBIs. Uh, If you were a good pitcher, it's because you had a lot of strikeouts. Uh, Basically even uh, in a a famous scene in that Moneyball movie, do do you even look like a baseball player? If you look like a baseball player, then you're probably going to be a good baseball player. You can't be a good baseball player if you don't look the part. Uh, While well, beginning with the Oakland A's and then put into massive hyper gear with the Tampa Bay Rays a, a few years later. Later after that, now every team in baseball is trying to find hidden statistics, uh, trying to find hidden skills that are largely neglected, but which are actually actually extremely important to winning actual baseball games. And as human beings, we act pretty much no differently than a scout or a baseball executive with all other humans. We are drawn towards what is immediately and visibly flashy and attractive. We wrongly value some people more than other people because of what we think they offer, all the while ignoring what makes someone truly valuable. Well, someday we'll preach through the whole letter of, the, of James, one of my favorite books of the Bible. And when we get to chapter two, I'll probably just preach this sermon again, however many years it is, because a couple years from now, when we get to James two, we will need this sermon again. But chapter one, just to give you just a tiny bit of a context uh, from where we're getting into, chapter one of James acts like a table of contents for the rest of the letter. Nearly everything that James brings up in chapter one will get uh, reiterated, he'll circle back to and elaborate in greater detail throughout the rest of the book from chapters two through five. But at the end of chapter one, James tells his readers, not to just hear the word, but to do the word. And that true and undefiled religion, how humans relate to God, gets played out in how we treat the weak, and how we treat the vulnerable, and how we uh, interact with and care for the defenseless of our society, and how we treat, for, uh, treat those who the world says is unimportant. And in James's culture, certainly the defenseless, the vulnerable, the unimportant were widows and orphans. This is a springboard for our text today. Though James tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, he needs to address something in the church that is deeply stained, that is under the influence of the world, the deep stain of partiality and of showing distinctions. So we're going to look at our text today in three parts. The first part in verses 1 through 4, what we think is important, and then in verses 5 through 11, what God thinks is important, and then how should we respond. So first of all, in verses 1 through 4, what we think is important. In verse 1, James pastorally and affectionately affectionately addresses his people as, my brothers, and they are indeed his brothers in Christ, as he assumes they are not Christians, just like in name only, meaning like they didn't just check the Christian box on the census once every 10 years because that's like their cultural uh, just way of living or something like that, but they are brothers because they are holding to the faith in the Lord Jesus in verse 1. James says that those, for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very glory of God, we must show no partiality. In other words, we must show no favoritism. Here, James says, like, let me give you an example. So he paints this picture of some kind of gathering of Christians, and there's some debate on what kind of gathering or assembly this is. I tend towards just thinking that this is just the regular old Lord's Day gathering of the church that James is addressing. And James says that a really flashy guy walks in. Hypothetically, this really flashy rich guy comes in, and everyone flocks to him to make sure that he feels very welcomed and honored. Everyone else needs to know that we think that he is welcomed and that he is honored. And yet, simultaneously, perhaps right behind him, a very poor man walks in. Not only does everyone not flock to him, he's actually even lucky if anyone even notices him at all. Or perhaps even worse, people do notice him, but everyone would just be a little bit more comfortable if he would actually leave. He's poor, he's dirty, he might smell bad, he makes me feel uncomfortable. He and I really don't have anything in common. Like if I were to approach him, what would we even talk about? He'll probably end up just asking for help at the end of our conversation. On top of that, what is this rich and important guy going to think if he sees me or us talking to this person? So I guess we can't kick him out, but let's make sure that everyone in this gathering makes sure that we, or everyone in this gathering knows that he is beneath us. He's not, not actually one of us, so he can just go stand over there in the corner or sit down at the edge of uh, the table or wherever we're meeting on this dirty ground. Now, what is happening in us when we respond to different people in different kinds of ways like this? Showing honor to those that we think are important, and then excluding or shaming those that we don't think are important. James tells us in verse 4 by asking rhetorically, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says that among us— the collective is making distinctions. There is division, which is an idea that James has already uh, begun to introduce and will go throughout his letter, that of division. Uh, In chapter one, it's all about individuals. In verse six of chapter one, and then again in verse eight, James says that a man who doubts God is a double-minded man, meaning he has like divided loyalties. He's saying he loves two things that are competing at the same time, In chapter 2, James is assigning the split loyalties of individuals now to the entire church. What is true of just individuals is actually true of this corporate body. You are divided. You are not acting as a whole and undivided body. There are distinctions and divisions amongst you. And I hope that it isn't too difficult for you to see that this isn't just a first century problem that James is addressing this is a problem of the human condition which at its basest level is a problem of the worship of the self how's this how is this actually self worship when we make these kinds of distinctions amongst different kinds of people well because of what we've talked about before that we tend toward treating human image bearers people that are dignified and honored by god just by their mere existence We treat them no differently than any other commodity in our life. We make decisions, all decisions, we make decisions based on personal satisfaction. And so as long as this person, whoever it is, is a net benefit to me, as long as they make me laugh, as long as they make me feel good about myself, as long as uh, they might even help me get into better social circles, as long as they just generally make my life more enjoyable, then I'm going to keep hanging out with them. But the moment that this person begins to become a drain, a net loss in my life, they're awkward. They tend to drag me into lower social circles. They generally just make my life less enjoyable. Then I'm going to distance myself from this person. I'm going to try to avoid them or even outright exclude them. But what does James say about this kind of thinking? especially when it's displayed and shared corporately amongst the church, that it makes us judges with evil thoughts. We elevate ourselves to be the arbiter of what is important based on, as we'll see, completely arbitrary standards of what God, uh, that God couldn't care less about. When the pretty people deserve our attention, when the physically attractive don't, when the popular people, or the rhetorically gifted people, or whatever it is that we deem to be important uh, are, becomes the basis by which, and the standards by which we are going to care and love for these people, uh, this is completely arbitrary, and it is actually evil. When we get really excited about celebrity, athlete, Christians becoming Christians, oh, this is, this is good news. Some, some NFL players become a Christian or something. Wonderful. But we really couldn't care less about the profession of faith or just the regular old attender at our church. When we move toward people who merely have the same skin color as us or run in the same kind of uh, socioeconomic circles as us, they have the same level edu- of education as us, they have the same makeup of family as us, they have the same cultural experiences and expectations. As us, Well, James exposes us for what we are. Evil and double-minded. Divided loyalties. Not loving people without distinction, which now we're going to see why it's such a big deal. Why that is actually evil. Now, secondly, what God thinks is important in verses 5 through 11. At first glance, it seems like James, along with his brother Jesus, just straight up denounces rich people. And then he elevates the poor. He seems to be saying, like, you guys sinfully elevate the rich, which is just really silly because all rich people are going to hell and all poor people are going to heaven. And it sure looks like that way. That's what he's saying, right? In verse 5, he says, "'Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom?' But some careful observation of this verse, and especially this verse in light of everything else that we know in in the rest of the Bible, will help us interpret this verse. Notice that James doesn't say that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be heirs of the kingdom. He says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. And then the implication is that therefore they will be heirs of the kingdom— And why is it that those who are poor can be rich in faith? Well, because they recognize their great need. Very rarely do we rich people, and by the way, if you are an American in 2020— You are richer than most people alive today in the world, certainly richer than most people who have ever lived. And while some of us presently are wealthier than others, and so that carries even a greater level of added heat to all of this, there is a sense in which this could come, this should come as an especially pointed warning to all of us in this room tonight. But rarely do we rich people have to care much about provision, Most of us don't have to worry about where we're going to sleep tonight, about whether we might eat before we go to bed or tomorrow, about safety. Will we actually survive the night to see tomorrow? The result, of course, being that we can tend toward going entire days, sometimes entire weeks, perhaps, without recognizing our need for God, without acknowledging Him, without thanking Him, for the things that he actually has provided. The poor, who can often be rich in faith, on the other hand, must wake up in the morning and depend upon God to act, to depend upon him to provide. They must acknowledge him throughout their day and acknowledge him for his grace. And then when they receive his grace, they are likely much quicker to respond in gratitude. As opposed to most of us who kind of silently and implicitly assume that we are owed three meals a day with snacks in between. That we are owed a nice house in a safe neighborhood. Not inherently bad things, but all that can cumulatively cumulatively work as kind of like a sleeping potion in our lives, making us drowsier and drowsier to our real need. Drowsier to God's existence minute-by-minute dependence upon his grace, drowsier to actual and real minute-by-minute faith in his promises. So the poor can often be rich in faith. It's not necessarily their poorness, their lack of money that James is emphasizing or even commending here. We all know poor people who have no faith in God. They do not love him. And we all know rich people who do have rich faith in God, that they do love him. But that the poor are often very rich in faith, which makes them heirs of the kingdom and that they do love them, love him, co-heirs to all of the same spiritual benefits as anyone who shares in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and yet these poorer brothers and sisters, those whom the world says are utterly unimportant and should be ignored, those brothers and sisters whom God has instead said, by their faith in Christ, are indeed co-heirs with Christ. They are little sub-rulers of this earth, delegated by God to be, their, be his little kings and queens on this earth and will rule with him for eternity. Those, brothers and sisters, you dishonor. What in the world? I, I, I don't think you understand who you are, who they are, where you've come from, and where You're all headed, James seems to be saying, if you dishonor this poor man who comes to you in unity with Christ. On top of that, James says, you want to know why that's really crazy to honor the rich while you dishonor the poor? He says the rich are the very ones who are oppressing you and who are dragging you into court, verse 6. The very traits that you are impressed with, their power, their money, are the same things that they will use to oppress and persecute the church. Are you nuts? Like, don't go honor the guy on Sundays together just because he's got money, because on Tuesday he could use that very same money to throw you into jail. You're going to show extreme honor to someone on Sunday who just days before is mocking Christ and the gospel of weakness? This doesn't make any sense. This would be like if some celebrity walked through our doors right here. Kanye West walks in. Katy Perry. Peyton Manning walks in. Like, can you imagine what would happen if Peyton Manning walked into this room right now and what our reaction to him would be, or even President Donald Trump. Like, if any of these walked into this room right now, and then we rolled out the red carpet for them, and we assigned, like, a personal security detail to keep all of the rest of you rabble away from them, We might even be able to convince ourselves that we need to make President Trump comfortable with us, because if he came to faith in Christ, like, what a powerful thing this could be for the gospel. Even better, if he became a member of our church, what a powerful platform that would give us for the gospel, you know, right? Uh, Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about the eternal state of celebrities and athletes and politicians. But if our desire for the famous and the powerful to become like one of us because of their so-called importance, despite the fact that they often use that importance to blaspheme God, James says, is just crazy. What are you doing? Those whom the world deems important are actually not important to God. Don't get suckered into thinking that some things that make a person important when God couldn't care less about those things are actually worth pursuing and commending. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So James is moving on. He's perhaps saying, I think I'm starting to make you understand, but I don't think you quite yet are getting it. So verse 8 through 11, he's, he's, he's saying, look, like you, you fulfill the law When you love your neighbor as yourself. But if you break one bit of it, you are accountable for all of it. James, like Jesus, is summing up the Old Testament law as a command to love. But seemingly, like Paul, James is making a distinction here in this paragraph between Old Covenant, Old Testament law, and New Covenant law for those on that side of the cross and for those on this side of the cross. In a phrase reminiscent of Paul's, the law of Christ that he is teaching and writing about in Galatians 6, James calls the command to love your neighbor as yourself the royal law. This phrase, the royal law, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. But it wouldn't be a phrase that would have been totally uh, unheard of or uh, strange to these first century readers. The royal law of human kings are the commands or the standard of living that would be expected when you live under a king, that a king would give to his subjects. And as we know from Jesus' teaching, your neighbor includes everyone. The poor, the outcast, even your enemy. It means loving those who do not bring a return on your social investment. Loving those who are a net neutral or can even cost you. That can be a net loss. I even read this week that an all lives matter response to the sentence, Black Lives Matter, may be the modern-day equivalent of, and who is my neighbor? It may not be, but it could be justification for your thinking. Yeah, I hear your plea to be valued, to be recognized as a societal equal, but like really like any talk about race is just going to continue to make things more divided, more divisive, as if Jesus himself didn't explicitly bring, bring up race in his parable of the Good Samaritan to incisively cut through that kind of thinking of, and who is my neighbor? Whom is it that I really have to love? And so my opening illustration about the Oakland A's actually isn't a good one. Well, it's true that what appears to make someone important actually isn't all that reliable, isn't actually all that true. The A's and the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox, they are all looking for enormous return on their investment. They're just looking for it in places that other teams aren't. They're trying to get ahead and be smarter than other teams to get that kind of return. But one pastor notes that this is the world's economy. The world's economy, that of your life for mine. But this is not the economy of heaven. The economy of heaven is my life for yours that God the Son left his place of glory to live amongst us and to die for us. And he has now changed our lives to understand the true economy of heaven, of our lives for others as well. The world sees themselves implicitly and even subconsciously as empty glasses, using other people in the world to fill themselves, to use others to be filled. But we Christians and The church ought to see ourselves as full glasses, having been filled with Christ, now able and willing to be able to sacrificially look to fill others. So James isn't commanding or implying here that you now start all of a sudden dishonoring the rich. If some person walks through these doors that you happen to know makes a ton of money— James isn't saying, now start dishonoring him. No, this would just be showing partiality and making distinctions now just with the tables flipped. Don't do that. The point is that where there used to be distinction and disunity between the rich and the poor, as the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no amount of money. There is no amount of fame. There is no amount of world-identified importance that makes someone more important in the kingdom of Christ, that makes someone more important in Christ's church. Just as Jesus says in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, any kind of person, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, white or black, Hispanic or native, important or unimportant, CEO or homeless. Only it seems that most of these Christians that James is writing to aren't believing these things, aren't acting these things, so he rebukes them. You are committing partiality in only loving those Who you think are giving you a good return. And that's not just a bad habit that you need to think better about and perhaps start to clean up in your life. This is unbelievably serious. James seems to be asking or saying that it seems as if you don't even understand the gospel itself, you are not understanding or practicing pure and undefiled religion that flows out of you to the vulnerable amongst you. In fact, James says, like, let me think of the two worst sins that I can possibly think of. In verse 11, it brings up murder and adultery. What you are doing is right there with those. Serious business. So it will not do to say as a church, well, we are not killing anyone. It will not do for us to say, I'm not sleeping with someone who's not my spouse. So we must be individually and corporately living lives as people who are holding fast to the faith in the Lord Jesus. If you murder, you are a transgressor. You are a a transgressor. You are a violator of the law. If you commit adultery, you are a transgressor. If you honor the rich, and important, while shaming, dishonoring, and excluding, and oppressing the unimportant, ignoring their plight often at the hands of injustice, then you are a transgressor. And you need the saving and the cleansing power of Jesus, the gospel in your life. It does not matter if you shoot a BB gun at a plate glass window or throw a bowling ball through a plate glass window. The plate glass will break all the same. This is what Jerry Bridges is getting after in his excellent little book, Respectable Sins. Just walking through one by one about sins that just are seemingly kind of just respectable, especially as Americans. And showing partiality and distinguishing between those whom we will love and honor is certainly a respectable and not really a big deal kind of a sin. James says no more. As elders, we've been thinking about our own tendencies individually, corporately towards complacency, how we can challenge and lead our church toward loving folks in the city even more proactively and more deeply beyond just mere like service projects or something or all good things, right? Or even treating people as projects. So keep your ears open for some practical initiatives, but beyond church-wide initiatives, the way that our church will really love and care for people who are vulnerable and defenseless in this city is if we as individuals are loving and caring for people who are vulnerable and defenseless in this city. And I'm not necessarily and only talking about like, like loving and caring for the homeless, though yes, but in inviting to lunch, striking up conversations with someone whom you feel is different than you, being filled with the love of Christ, that now is pouring out and channeling through you for people of different skin color than you, who perhaps even might speak a different language than you, who are perhaps coming from a different cultural or family background as you. These are weighty, weighty expectations for us as Christians and as a church. And perhaps like me, you are feeling this weight. You are feeling perhaps a weight of failure, perhaps feeling a weight of I don't care as much as I ought. I'm not living like I ought. I'm not honoring and loving people like I ought. And perhaps you just feel the weight of a bunch of oughts, of a bunch of, these are the things that I know I ought to do. I need to try harder and be better this week or this month. Well, James has one more ought for us, but it's couched in what is already true in the gospel. Verses 12 to 13. How should we respond? How should we respond to all that we have thought through already? Verse 12. "So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." 13: "For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." So here's our concluding command from James. His parting words for us as we wrap up this section. Verse 12: "So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty, the law of freedom, the royal law, which stands in stark contrast to the law which James had been describing, the law of which we are all transgressors, the law of which we are all violators, the law under which we all stand condemned. If we find, or if we attempt to find, or earn our, earn our way into God's acceptance, we will fail. We'll never do it. We've broken it irrevocably with a BB gun or a bowling ball. We value what God doesn't. We ongoingly ignore that which God loves, but Christ has perfectly kept the law of the old covenant. He has fulfilled and absorbed it into himself. and we get His perfect record credited to us, given to us, when we are trusting in Him by faith, when we are united to Him in His life and His death and his resurrection. We are free. We are at liberty, freedom from seeking to earn God's favor. In Christ, we have God's favor. So now, if all of that is true, if you have been freed by the cross of Christ and by his empty tomb, now speak and act as those who are being judged on Christ's merit. Not on whether or not you will love well enough this week, but on whether or not Christ has loved you well enough, and he has. The gospel isn't just about justification. It isn't just about your getting your sins initially forgiven. That's a starting point. But it is about total transformation. It is about the kingdom of heaven being made known on earth. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness because of what Christ has done, showing love and honor to the unimportant, to us, the unimportant, now speak and act in the same way. No longer live for yourselves, but live for righteousness. Now live to show love and honor to the unimportant. Or even think through Paul's command in Romans 12, to outdo each other in showing honor. How about that? Not trying to like keep a record of your honor that you're showing to others so that you can compare your resume to other church members, but just in a kind of like a, I don't know, a friendly competition of love, which is not a bad thing when it's motivated by grace. How can we outdo each other in showing honor? How can we outlove one another? Not to gain our acceptance before God, but as Tim Keller says, I'm accepted and therefore I obey. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If you are not showing mercy and grace to others, it's more likely that you don't actually understand grace and mercy. You don't understand the gospel. And again, this might come as a heavy weight for you. Perhaps you're thinking through these things, or perhaps you've been reading and hearing and having conversations with folks over the past month or two months, and you're realizing you're you're looking in the mirror and you're perhaps not liking what you're seeing. I've been coming to church my entire life. I'm very familiar with the ins and the outs of the gospel, and I'm still not motivated in the way that I ought to be. I'm still not loving the way that I ought to love. I'm not transformed in the way that I want to be transformed. And praise the Lord, that should be all of us. There is not one of us who should ever say that we have arrived in holiness until Christ returns. But the mirror still sometimes is revealing something ugly. I know I am united in Christ. I'm a beloved son and daughter. But now, what now? Well, James concludes with a ray of hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Even with the last day's judgment, for those who are in Christ, we actually do not get what we deserve. Condemnation. We will receive mercy because Christ has given it. He has lived and died for us. He has loved us. And even as we imperfectly love him, as we imperfectly love others, even we, as we grow out of worldly inclinations to show partiality, mercy will still triumph over judgment. And so, forgetting what is behind, like Paul in Philippians 3, we can be pressing on, pressing on for the upward goal of the prize of God through Christ Jesus. What an amazing freedom, the law of liberty, that he has given us to now begin to live into individually and together. Human beings are not commodities for your increasing happiness, but they are objects of the love of God through Christ in you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're hoping and praying towards uh, greater diversity within the life of this church, ethnically, socioeconomically. We want to be praying toward that end, individually and corporately. Please, please pray for it. Please, please pray for the love of Christ to continually be moving out and through us to this city. But the ground is level at the foot of the cross and as, Lord willing, we continue to grow as he transforms our hearts and he transforms our church. The temptation will be ever present to continue to show partiality, to make Distinction. And so, as that temptation will be ever present, Lord willing, we'll come back to this book in a couple months or or a couple years, and I'll preach this sermon again, because we will need it again and again and again until the return of Christ, but as He continually transforms us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross for us all. And let's pray toward that end. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed make it known to us how unlovely we are, but that you have made us lovely in Christ, that there is nothing inherently righteous about us, that there is nothing inherently commendable about us, no amount of money, no amount of status or power or intellect or um, just abilities that we have that make us more acceptable to you before others, but that you look at the heart that you look at the humble, that you look at those who are rich in faith in the work of Christ on their behalf. God, continue to press us down. Make us humble. What a scary prayer to pray. But we do pray that you would make us humble. You would give us humility, even through loss, so that we might know the surpassing riches of Christ. And we pray that you would Make the reality of the cross even more impactful on our life, that the cross might cast a deeper shadow into all areas of our life and how we love others. We pray that you would do this for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of our neighbor. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.ChristChurchABQ.com.